and welcome back to the Making a Difference for Us podcast. I'm your host, Margot, and I'm joined today by Edwin, Kevin, Christine, and Jim. Today, we'll be discussing minimum wage. Starting out with Jim, I'd like to hear his answers on how does raising the minimum wage impact the cost of goods and services? Who benefits from increased minimum wage? Would increasing the minimum wage cause employers to consider moving operations to somewhere with a lower cost of labor? And should the minimum wage increase yearly to align with the cost of living? Also, why do you think the minimum wage has not been adjusted accordingly over the past few years? Thank you, Margo. So minimum wage, I'd love to start off with always talking about with a Thomas Sowell quote, the esteemed economist, who said, unfortunately, the minimum wage is always zero. And so what we're talking about is regulations to enforce a minimum wage on given states or the country. And so the way that shakes out the Thomas Sowell quote is when productivity isn't enough to justify that wage, employees don't get employed. You know, you can see that in the trends of uh, particularly teen employment rates, which go down substantially anytime a minimum wage is enacted or raised. Again, if that productivity doesn't merit the wage, then employers will either automate or do without. My son's a teenager wanting to find a job. And even in today's overheated market that favors the employee, he's struggling because there are a lot of places that just won't hire teenagers because they don't think it's worth Michigan's minimum wage. When it comes to whether minimum wages should be increased uh, according to inflation, again, if you accept the argument that they're beneficial, sure, but to me, they're detrimental. Um, I mentioned one group they hit, which is the youth uh, who are looking for, for jobs. The other group they hit really hard are the less skilled and those on the border of poverty anyway, uh, again, because it goes to that productivity question. Certainly, credentials don't necessarily imply increased productivity, but people who get those credentials tend to be on the higher levels of productivity, at least starting out. Someone just getting into the workforce, even full-time, who doesn't have those credentials might have to accept a lower wage. If the minimum wage is higher than that low wage on offer, they simply don't get employed. And so the ones who really benefit from a minimum wage are those who are higher on the seniority level, uh, those who have established credentials or work history. Uh, you can argue that's a good thing, but I would argue the detriment for the ones who are worse off in society uh, militates against having minimum wage laws. Thanks, Margo and Jim. Um, how does raising the minimum wage impact the cost of goods and service, and how does it affect the free market? I believe this is a simple question, and there's a two-part answer to this, which creates the quagmire in today's debate in the marketplace. First, if you only raise the payroll costs in your budget, this will impact the owner's profit and or the shareholder's profit. In today's capitalistic free market, that is a heinous crime, which has made the decision to really will impact their way of life and the meaning of their lifestyle because everything is driven from the bottom line and wage basically has a big impact to their budget. The second part, not to impact the bottom line, companies will increase the cost of goods and services and pass that expense over to the consumer, which then has or will have a trickle down effect that everyone will start crying inflation. So who benefits from the increased wage salary? Well, from my findings, it's everyone, which leads us to this the debate today. Therefore, we have a minimum wage law, which was started by President Roosevelt when he signed the Fair Labor Act, the FLSA, into law in 1938. 
with the purpose to protect the American workers from being exploited in order to maintain what we call the minimum wage standard of living necessary for health, efficiencies, and a general well-being without substantially curtailing employment. So it really, you look back at it is that, you know, when we look at the purpose behind that, because most of the times we, government steps in when things start going away, straight. Because now you look at some of the impacts in our quality. When we talk about quality service, we have the FDA making sure that products are not basically tainted into our marketplace. In the early 20s, you have that impact. So you have those requirements that we fall. So once again, government steps in. We also looked at the safety. OSHA came into place. OSHA came in because why? Manufacturing worlds were not looking at the well-being and safety of their employees. So once again, you have government, and like we said, most people, when you're talking about on the other side, you're talking about big corporations that, you know, or like you said, impacting the way I do business. So we have three major laws that are affected in their late 20s. You know, you have the FDA, you have quality OSHA, and now we have the, the FAIR Act for employment. So I think once again, those are the points that we have to look at and we have to manage accordingly. And once again, that aligns into which most of the Republicans talk about is you're talking about the greatest document written. So that once again, it's evolving. So will companies look for places or you know places to move our employment if necessary? Yeah, they're going to find a place to move it, shut down. If operations, inc you know, if the labor costs has increased and it's impacted from that standpoint. So I think the bottom line is a major factor. Finally, yes, minimum wage should be adjusted based on inflation and the market, whereas the service are to be rendered. Just like anyone who has a job today, you know, you're getting cost of living increases. Okay, which companies they're making a profit? Yes, they're going to have that. They're looking at it. that's how they maintain great uh, services from their employees, employers. So I'm going to go back and once again, would Roosevelt think about Roosevelt today? How would he look at that piece? You know, because the federal government has not raised the minimum wage since 2009 at 725. The average wage of this country is nine dollars and 48 cents. In my opinion, would he be very disappointed? From what he started back in the thir 1938, I think, hell yes, he'll be impacted by that. And we're wondering what the heck, because we're not protecting our labor force. So thanks, Margo. Thanks, Jim, for the time. And looking forward to hearing from Edwin and Christine. Thank you, Kevin and Edwin. If you'd like to go ahead and give us your thoughts on today's questions. So I think I'd like to share a stat. So you, we've talked about minimum wage not being raised for the last 30 years. So... If you look 30, 30 years ago, uh, CEOs and workers, the difference was workers were 59 to one as far as the ratio of what they're being paid versus a CEO of the company they work for. And this is, this is pulled through the uh, Center for Economic and Policy Research. And out of the 350 firms they looked at today, they said that the difference, the gap of income between the CEO and a worker is 1,400 to one, when 30 years ago it was 59 to one. So in this case, if we have raised minimum wage at the rate in which companies were growing, the minimum wage would be around $24 an hour. However, that's a government implied minimum wage and there should be a difference between you look at minimum wage versus a livable wage there's you know minimum wage today even if it goes to $15 an hour you're still looking at what $32,000 a year uh, I think the poverty line is around $26,000 a year for a single person and we all know on this on this podcast that you know 
at $26,000 a year, you're not going to have much of a lifestyle whatsoever. So how does it impact goods and services? If we pay people more money, then we have to raise the cost of goods and services. So does that really, does it really change anything to, to raise the minimum wage? Because we're going to raise the cost of goods and services. So the person getting more money may not realize a raise because he's going to have to pay more money for the products and services he buys anyway. Uh, that's one thought. And the other thought is, you know, one side says, hey, it's going to uh, maybe equalize some some uh, racial and gender inequalities by raising minimum wage, bringing people that are underserved up to a higher wage. Well, there's plenty of opportunity for people that are uh, people of uh, different gender and, and, and racial backgrounds to go and, and have higher paying jobs. So, you know, if, if wait, raising the minimum wage helps the underserved community, I don't know that it's really going to help unemployment. I don't know that it's going to help the cost of goods and services because those are all going to go back up because we're going to have to be able to afford to pay the people the higher wages. So I think in the system we live in, I think there's, you know, there's people for every job that's out there. Some of them are low, lower paying and some are high paying. So we've got to evaluate that before just going, hey, let the government regulate what we pay people. So who benefits from minimum wage? I can't tell you that because I think that's a very open-ended question. Uh, I would assume that raising the minimum wage, if you are in some type of productivity type environment, you would look for reasons or ways to bring that cost down. So offloading your cost somewhere else where labor is cheaper, I certainly see that as that's something we've done in the past. I'm sure that's something we'll do in the future. If we've got to pay people more money, we're going to look at ways to get more done for less money. So that means probably sending more jobs and more productivity somewhere else. I think if a company's not thinking about moving off offshore, they'll, they will. And the whole thing about whether or not we should raise minimum wage every year, it should be reevaluated. But again, it's a government program. So I think companies that are privately held should be able to figure out what they need to pay employees. And I think it should be based on skill and merit. Thank you, Edwin and Christine. Finally, if you'll want to go ahead and give us your thoughts on the three questions before we segue into our open table. Thanks, Margo, and thanks everyone else for uh, for chiming in. I, as far as how does raising the minimum wage impact cost of goods and services, as well as the free market? Well, cost of goods and services will will probably go up. Um, I don't see them going up enough that it's going to completely cancel it out. Like say the minimum wage is raised a certain dollar amount. It's not as if, um, I don't believe that all the goods and services will be raised that much that it'll just kind of cancel it out as zero. Um, what I do see happening most of all is like increasing them. Who's going to benefit from it? Well, I think a lot of folks could benefit from that. I think the, uh, lowest economic groups could benefit from increasing the minimum wage. I think that small businesses could potentially see a, um, they could also benefit from this as well. They could maybe see increased consumer spending. Um, they might lower their employee turnaround and which could also increase productivity. I know if I go to a job where I feel valued and um, compensated for my value, as an employee, um, I'm more likely to bring a positive worth ethic, have a desire to go to work. And um, I think it could increase 
increased morale in the small business as well. Um, I do see where it could potentially go the other way, but there might be other details within a small business that might need to be looked at. Um, would increasing the minimum wage cause employees to consider moving operations elsewhere? Um, yeah, <laughs> probably. Um, whether that is a big corporation moving things offshore, whether that is um, a bigger corporation just relocating to a different state where maybe um, the cost of living is a little bit lower, they can get away, I suppose, with paying a lower wage. Um, those are all options, whether it's a local business as well who might just use a third party that um, to bring in some employees that or excuse me, some temporary folks, temp jobs that aren't employees, um, feel like they could potentially pay them a lower wage and uh, it could decrease the expenses for the company. Um, but what I think it really all comes down to is profit. How much is the, the corporation or the business? What kind of profit are they? How are they? How open are they to potentially have their profit decrease? And what does that mean? And I don't mean um, the business as a whole losing money. I mean the CEO or um, folks who are more significantly paid, maybe they, maybe they might be a little bit, a little bit affected, or maybe someone's, I don't know, going extreme way, someone's third house might have to go out the window, right? I see a lot of that around, a lot of jokes around it, but that's also, that's also a reality. Like, are the folks who make the most amount of money perhaps willing to not make a little bit less in the grand scheme of things so that other folks um, can make a living, living wage, they can maybe only have one job instead of two jobs and I'm making 725 and I'm at one at one job I can't afford to pay my bills so I go and make 725 at another job both of which who aren't willing to hire me part-time or full-time excuse me because that might mean um closer to paying overtime or something like that if I'm making $15 an hour say I could just tone it down to one job which would open up another job for another person to fill in that slot um at job number two also making $15 an hour what does that mean? It means more time at home. It maybe means more rest, less stress, um, maybe less government assistance coming in. Um, I think raising the minimum wage is a fantastic idea. Um, should it be increased annually? I don't know. Sometimes um, I think that uh, assessing what livable, what a living wage could be or where the market's at annually is a good idea. However, should it increase annually? I don't know. Um, maybe that's more of a three-year thing. Maybe you look at it for three years and see what the average is and then go from there. That's where I'm at with those questions today, Margo. Thank you, Christine. And now going into our open discussion, I'd like to provide a little bit of food for thought. Do you think that if the minimum wage is increased at the federal level, the U.S. government could restrict or limit the amount of labor a company outsources to other countries in order to keep U.S. citizens employed at a livable wage? Edwin, if you'd like to go ahead and start us out. Sure. Back to government involvement with private entity. I mean, people, people that have successful companies should not apologize for being successful. So to say, hey, you need to give more of your money to your employees. It's not, you know, that, that really upsets the fit, a free market because at this point, it doesn't become a free market. It becomes a government-ran entity, and that's not what free market's all about. Well, so but would, to think that, go ahead. Well, with that philosophy, okay, so that person needs employers, employees, right? So if he, he's sure. successful doing it, he wasn't, it was based on his ideal. There was people, it was a collaborated effort to get to that point. 
So if, if we really want to be shrewd about this, he got his riches from people helping him get to where he's at. So the question is, is what is a fair, equitable price to help him get there? So that's where you have the disparity is trying to understand, you know, this guy has a, a successful business, but it came after the fruits of those individuals who work for him. So we can't lose sight of that. I, that that's what the, the debate is, is what is a fair, equitable price to a, a business? And that's why the, the Fair uh, Labor Act was in place, because there were child labor laws. There were issues with people getting there because, once again, what is right and what is fair? So I, I see where you're coming from, but that success came off the backbone of others. Jim, I, I think, um, once again, I, I think, once again, you talked about earlier about minimum wage being zero. So with that being said, how does a company being successful without the labor of those individuals who allowed that to happen? When you get well, well, they, they, everybody that works for those companies that are successful, they get a <clears throat> they get a stimulus check. We call them paychecks. In the last couple of years, people didn't work because they got stimulus checks. Well, these people got stimulated by the income they made helping a company become successful. And most, I would say, more companies than not probably rewarded the people that were very large contributors to the success of their companies. That's what. Well, you, once again, you, you look at that practice, it's, it's one of those things when you're saying, well, they're taking a stimulus check. Well, once again, you got to look at those that are hiring or they would jump ship for 25 cents across the road to get more. So now you're saying you're, you're saying individuals who are getting stimulus checks are lazy. No, they're kind of smart. If that means that I can go to work and work my butt off. No. No, yes, what I said. I said a paycheck is a stimulus oh, okay. check. So good, you take if you take your if you take your butt to work, you're getting a stimulus check on payday. That's no, what you get. No, but to, to implied about the stimulus check was it's a it's a money to no no it, it is something that you're working for. So don't get mixed up between a paycheck and a hardworking individual and a stimulus check because it's about the narrative how we see that term stimulus check. Okay, a stimulus check to me means I'm sitting at home getting paid for doing nothing. Me going to work is a hard day's earned wage. So don't get those two mixed up. Having the government tell employers what's fair, uh, boy, talk about a frightening prospect. Are there greedy employers? Absolutely. That comment that Edwin made about CEOs pay, it's unconscionable. I mean, talk about a greedy lot of people. Do I want the government fixing that? No, because the trouble is the government has this broad swath that they come down with. And like I talked about, no one ever thinks about who it hurts. My son hurt by the minimum wage, low earners hurt by the minimum wage, people out of work because their labor today isn't worth the minimum wage. That's a market reality. Um, and so you got to look at both sides of the coin. Kevin, you gave the analogy of OSHA. I mean, that's a great example because you look at the graph of, um, workplace fatalities before and after OSHA, no change whatsoever. But what did change? Employers paid more for record keeping and for extra people to do um, the, the safety jobs that they had to create because of OSHA and to keep all the uh, inspectors happy when they show up. American business gets less competitive internationally. And then so Margo brings up getting government further involved if we have a minimum minimum wage and it makes us less competitive against other countries, should we then prevent people from buying overseas? I mean, it's crazy. We're pricing ourselves out of the market. Industry largely fled because of all this stuff. And, and, and we're busy talking about how we reshore stuff. I, to me, 
one of the big things is just get government out of the way. Hey, Jim, I agree with a lot of things you're saying there when you're talking about how we overdo things and we put things on top of it to add a cost. So when you're talking about the cause and effect is we're look, looking at the countries, you know, where are some of our lab, labor is going to? Low economic areas that's going to change the impact, but you don't have any, uh, you don't have any regulations on that standpoint. So yes, are Americans always looking at spending 20%, you know, 80% on the 20% versus looking at the big picture, which you were just talking about, right? So I think, you know, I'm hoping that Christine and Edwin can add on. I, there's some points I love to talk more about that because that's the whole piece about big businesses. But then you also, with big businesses, you get corrupt owners. So how do you balance that out? So, and that's where you're coming from. So Christine, please. And I do declare, I do that. I don't think that um, every every business where someone, I don't think someone should punish for uh, having a successful business. Um, but I, on the flip side, I think that, uh, what was talked about, who who is suffering because of the success of that business. And if it's the employees, well, then maybe part of this conversation, which I've heard folks talk about, is how do you, <laughs> I don't love the word regulate, but how do you regulate or how do you bring um, bring someone back into reality when they are the CEO or someone else up in the ranks is making all this tons of money and then all the employees are stuck in poverty? Um I don't, I don't know that balance of it. I don't know. It seems like to me, minimum wage could be a good start. And the other pieces too, is that just more government control? Well, potentially, yes. Well, shoot, now we're back in the beginning. What's this cyclical thing? Um, and maybe I'm sounding like I'm a little wishy-washy and perhaps that's what it is. I, it, most of me believes that minimum wage should be increased. That just seems like it should, it should happen. Um, because folks are stuck in poverty or is it like housing comes down and then who regulates that shoot is that the government again you know all, the, all these trickle effects well if we're not going to raise the minimum wage how do we make life more affordable in this country for people to live like what would be the other option then i don't know anyone have a suggestion no <clears throat> no but i will i will share that the richest guy in the world most successful company known to man right now the company that he has is rated number one company to work for in the country, period. Now, you don't see a lot of people yelling about the cost and their wages and, and how much money the CEO makes there. You know, he built a company that's revolutionized what we do on a regular basis and no apology needed. He's got one of the most successful brands and companies in this world. Well, I, know, well, but I want to talk about that. I think that's also an individual who basically depends on who you want to talk about and what, what you're reading, because that's not the case where I, where I live and what I hear. Yeah. So Christine had a phenomenal question about how do you impact wages and get people to a living wage? And I think a parallel conversation that goes right to that is the whole skilled trades thing versus college. You know, we've steered all these people to college into, um, into disciplines that don't necessarily pay a living wage and plus they're heavily into debt when they come out. Um, to me, we should be heavily investing in reestablishing the training for trades in high schools like we used to have with shop classes, um, in our community colleges, in conjunction with the companies that need those employees. Because um, there's en enormous success stories out there of people putting in two years of school, coming out and making you know high five figures, low six figures with no debt versus all these folks who really never belonged in college that we've steered there who are now mired in poverty because of the 
that they took on. Jim, I really love what you're talking about, about the skill traits, but the problem is I've sat on the board and I've actually worked on one of those things and looked at the problem we're faced with is that the parents and everyone that you're talking about that, because you know, and I know when working at our employer, one of the things was to get incentivizing and reaching out to those parents and saying, we were going to pay for the education, but we would support their sponsorship in the skill trades. So there are programs out there and Michigan is one of them where there, I think there's over 20,000 plus lack of skilled trade professions because of people going that route and not understanding it, but it's the premise behind what it takes to be that skilled trade. So we got a lot of work to do behind that. But once you get those skilled trades, our employers willing to pay for their worth because you know in your industry to have a master electrician with uh, a degree in, in, of controls, he is a unicorn. And right now depends on his value. He's worth between hundred dollars to $150,000. But guess what? Industry is not recognizing what the value he brings to the table. Okay. And they, so what they're doing is getting rid of that and sort of outsourcing that, or they're basically trying to teach that individual in-house, which causes cause and effect issues because of the cost of his services. So I think you're on the right track, but are we willing to, as a society, pay for that cost of that person's skills and knowledge and then right now it's not showing the case i think that's a great idea about putting more emphasis on the trades i i have been to college but my job i'm my career is based on a trade career and the that's great for high schoolers or folks that are maybe young in college but what about the the parents right now who would love that opportunity but right now they're stuck working to job paying seven twenty five an hour that maybe don't have benefits, maybe don't have these other things, and that either comes out of pocket or that some sort of government assistance um, with their health insurance. But that could be great to have programs to sort of create access to that. But if if they're stuck working two jobs, when are they going to have time to do that? They got to go home eventually and take care of their kids or do something else. Where are they going to still be able to pay the bills and take this training I guess, to have a, a stronger, a stronger career within the trades. That's another puzzle or piece to the puzzle that I don't see fitting. I think, I think the common denominator is I think we all agree. We need to quit giving out fish and start handing out fish bowls. I mean, that's the, now that, that's, that's, that's what I see. I, I think uh, give people tools and skills to be able to make more money and maybe we'll find some worth and, 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 and pay people what they're worth versus, you know, we, we, tend to be losing a lot of the trades that were very important 30 years ago and then we're winding up with a shortage of it. So it's a trickle down thing. So we're winding up sending productivity somewhere else. We're not paying people enough money here. There's, there's a lot of, a lot of different things, a lot of factors that go into play. And I think, uh, you know, teaching people how to do things and, and giving people the skills that were very valuable 30 years ago. And it's, it's becoming revolutionary. It's coming back around. It's we're, we're becoming heavily dependent on people that have certain trades again. Well, I want to ask Jim a question since he's in the manufacturing and he has background in manufacturing. What is the percentage of most manufacturing or any service industry, a ratio to full-time to temporary services because of their balancing that piece out? Yeah, that varies pretty widely by right. the area of business. Um, hazarding a guess on average, probably like 20% temp. Sometimes even higher depends where you're at. So the problem is, is why mm -hmm. they try to control the cost? And as well as I know you're faced with some of that industry of the people you get in and they don't have the talent and skills and it doesn't move the needle or the value sometimes because you have 
you not sustaining that and retaining that great talent. So it, it is a very vicious circle that we live in doing because of, like you said, inflation, cost of goods, profit, everything squeezing from that moving with being competitive in the world. So how does it come back? It comes back to the labor part. And the question is, is how do we balance that out? In those very low paying uh, manufacturing jobs, if it gets beyond the entry level productivity, they automate those jobs away. So again, the minimum wage, like I said up front, is zero. And we're merging outside our own talent pool, trying to get talent from somewhere else to fill those gaps. Well, we're missing out some of those segments on big corporations because you're looking at the service industry to support those big businesses. You have the catering service, you have lawn care service, you have a lot of those things that are outsourced and are managed by an individual who are now employees who are now trying to, you know, fall into that minimum wage requirements because they're trying to reduce their cost. So a lot of things that we're talking about in large corporations or even businesses is outsourcing it. And you're looking at outsourcing based on the, the labor costs. Thank you everyone for that. And now I'd like to go ahead and go into our closing statements. And Christine, if you'll start us out. I do think that minimum wage should increase and um, I'm also a little, little hesitant to have the government come in and, and control one more thing. Um, but I don't see, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around how well uh, folks are going to be making um, a living wage without having a minimum wage mandate. And I'm very much open to the idea of more focus on um, on trades and education surrounding the trade, access to trades. But again, folks have to be able to earn a living while in school or figure out another way for um, for living expenses to be covered. And I don't see that like while they're in the training, and I don't see that happening without the minimum wage increasing. Thank you, Christine. And Jim, if you want to go ahead and give us your closing statements. Yeah. Thanks to everyone for the excellent discussion. Uh, there's some great points made today. Uh, you know, I go back to my opening point, which is the reality is that the minimum wage is zero. And, and beyond that, the productivity wage is set by market. Now, when government steps in and puts in mandates and restrictions and such, it doesn't change economic reality. It just fiddles with how people address it. So we've talked about some of that today. So again, my ideal is to get government completely out of it, let the market set the prices. Do we as a society then have a responsibility to help people who are caught out on all that? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, we have programs within government to do that. I think too, we've hit on some excellent points about business and some of the the uh, disparities that are existing in business today, some of the greed that's very obvious. Um, so I challenge business to step up as well. Um, Kevin and Christine, you both talked about the cost of these programs to elevate people's skills. Business ought to help with that. Absolutely. We should be the ones creating that workforce that we need for the future. Um, I've challenged industry organizations with that almost every time I have a speaking role. And so there are solutions to the problem that's really at the root of what we talk about when we talk about minimum wage. I just don't think having that floor of what you're going to pay people instituted by government, pretending that that's not hurting people and not just messing with inevitable market realities is a falsehood. Thank you. Thank you, Jim and Kevin, if you'll go ahead and give us your closing statements. Well, you know, I, you know, we've had quite a few, uh, episodes and conversation. And this is one I'm going to really look into it. And Jim, I, I like your productivity wage philosophy. But the problem is, is that that's why the, the Fair Labor Act was created, was to protect the individuals. And th because when you start talking about greed and evil, 
it comes in a lot of different shapes and forms and sizes. And we have to have a balance for it. That's where, once again, government and business and the sector of the public sector have to work together. It is not one or the other. It is a combination of all three trying to figure it out. If the productivity wage, because you really look at it, since 2009, the minimum wage has not been adjusted because it's still in that point of what should it be? And there's too many factors impacting that piece. And then we have safeguards behind that to make sure those stimulus checks or things that come out that sort of fills in that safety gap. So we're all paying for it. So I really like to have more discussion around this and I liked where Jim's taking it. But once again, the reason why it was created is because of things that our workforce and what we did because of greed and evilness did not allow us to grow proportionally with how we live and what we define today as a fair living cost and being able to do what, what a person wants to bring home to their family, which is a fair wage earning going out there and supporting that piece and as well as their families to do those things that we talk about, higher education, skilled trades, but it has to come from sacrificing from the few. So I'm hoping that we can work to this and have a continued conversation. So thanks, Jim. Thanks, Christine, for your perspective. And I, wait, I can't wait to hear from Edwin. Thank you, Kevin. And Edwin, if you'd like to go ahead and close this out and give us your final statement. Sure. I think this was an awesome topic. And I think we found uh, a lot of commonality about how we're thinking about the minimum wage piece. And I think there's still some, some small pieces that we can all take back and, and maybe uncover additional resources uh, that we can maybe share in a later episode. Um, I like the idea about the, the, the training piece and, and creating a, a, a better uh, workforce to demand more pay. And I think that's all through very focused career pathing. And I think when we look at that, we probably should, well, you know, if we're going, if we're going to enforce what we pay people or the government's going to enforce it, then they need to enforce how they train people to maybe to, to, to push a, a, a targeted career path for people to move up through companies so they can make higher wages and they can be better trained and we can have higher technical skills in certain companies. And the other piece of that is I think we talk about minimum wage and, and, and a government being involved with what we pay people. Well, there's two kinds of companies out there. We also have the private sector and then we have the public sector. So when you look at publicly traded companies that is heavily regulated by the the Federal Trade Commission and, 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 you know, it's, it's a public company. Maybe some of those are the ones that really are affected by the minimum wage. Cause if you look at the uh, private companies, I don't know that the government really should be involved in the private companies um, dictation of wages. So I'm going to take that back and give it some thought. And I'd, I'd like to maybe touch on that on a later episode on what does that really mean? Public companies versus pri private companies and how minimum wage should affect that through the government. I appreciate everybody's time. Jim, Christine, Margo, and Kevin, uh, thanks for letting me be a part of this uh, conversation. I think it's a big conversation to have and more to come. Thank you, Jim, Christine, Edwin, and Kevin for your thoughts today. And thank you to our listeners from wherever you've decided to join us today, whether it be our website, RSS feed, Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. Today's episode also concludes our first season. You'll hear back from us in about a month, and we can't wait to share what we've been working on with you.